0: I'm Sam and I'm here with Kat. Hello. And welcome to Our Threatened Species.
1: This is a podcast where we talk about the vulnerable wildlife in Britain with help from our expert guests.
0: Wildlife is decreasing across the world and whilst we all want to protect the big charismatic species like lions and giraffes, it's easy to forget the animals and plants we have right on our doorstep.
1: So this podcast aims to shine a light on the fantastic species that live right here in the UK, because as a wise man once told me that to save the world, you must first understand what's on it.
0: So follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Threatened Species to get in touch and to ask your questions.
1: So this is episode four.
0: Yes it is and it definitely feels like we're making some podcast progress. Today we got to speak to a very interesting
1: guest. We did. He's an ecologist and author of numerous books including The Garden Jungle and most recently Gardening for Bumblebees.
0: We got the chance to speak to him about both of those things, bees and wildlife gardening. And I definitely feel like I know how to make my garden a more biodiverse area.
1: Me too. You know I feel like this follows on really nicely from our chat with Lucy Lapbing as well.
0: Yeah, she touched on leaving gardens alone and not using pesticides too. So this is definitely a great next episode after that one.
1: So please welcome my guest, Dave Goulson. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Absolute pleasure.
1: As we all know, you're extremely interested in all insects, but what drew you to have a particular fondness for bees?
2: Actually, it started out, it wasn't particularly bees when I was little. I, was, I just like nature and insects generally. I don't know why. It sounds a bit weird, really. But uh, bees, I didn't. I was in my late 20s when I really got hooked on on bees. So it was quite a latecomer. Um, I did my PhD on butterflies. They were kind of what I really liked to start with. But I eventually came to realize that uh, butterflies are kind of quite stupid, kind of airheaded, beautiful, but simple creatures compared to bees that are much more intelligent and do all sorts of interesting weird stuff. I saw these bees in a patch of flowers and and I saw them flying you know, they fly from flower to flower, obviously, but they don't land on every flower. And you can see this anywhere if you just sit and watch them. They'll often fly up to a flower with their antennae out, but at the last second they veer off as if there's something wrong with it. And I I noticed that and I thought, I don't know what they're doing. And I couldn't find any explanation anywhere in in books or papers or whatever. So I ended up spending five years unraveling it. And and basically they're sniffing the flower for the The smell of a recent bee visitor. And if someone's been there recently, the flower will be empty, so there's no point in landing. So it just saves them a half a second or something. But if you're visiting, you know, 10,000 flowers a day, then that adds up. But yeah, but but then I was kind of hooked after that. And that was quite a while ago, nearly 30 years. So um, uh, there's enough to keep me busy for a lot lot while longer, I should say.
0: And uh, how many species of bees can be found in
2: the British Isles? it's about 270 at the moment it wobbles up and down we've lost a few to extinction and but we have gained one or two with climate change but yeah a lot more than most people realize you know I mean there's 20,000 species of bee in the world and and I think a lot of people think there's one or two you know they know there's, there's honeybees but they've probably all also heard of bumblebees but that might be about it and they think that they pollinate everything but of course you know obviously there's, there's a lot more to bees than than that but And also pollination isn't just done by bees. It's done by a whole host of other insects too. But yeah, lots of bees. And and they're pretty tricky to identify, which is a bit of an obstacle to getting to finding out more about them because a lot of them look rather similar, unfortunately.
0: And what are our most endangered species of bees?
2: (laughs) Well... I know the bumblebees best. I mean, we, there are quite a few solitary bees that are endangered, but I, I my speciality is really bumblebees. And in my lifetime, we've lost what one of our 26 bumblebee species has gone extinct in the UK, you know, the short-haired bumblebee. Um, and in fact, I've been involved in trying to reintroduce them, um, but that hasn't so far succeeded, sadly. So, so that one uh, is at the moment gone. But the, the, if another one were to follow it, it's probably going to be the Shrill carder bumblebee, which actually lives around you. Um, one, of, one of its last few strongholds is not so far from Swansea, if I remember correctly. Shrill carders is this lovely little pretty the red bottom and sort of greyish yellow stripes and it's named because it has a a higher pitched buzz than most bumblebees so you can actually I identify from the noise um, with a bit of practice. But anyway, it used to be found if you look in the old maps from 60, 70 years ago, it was found all over the bottom half of Britain. It was quite a common bee. But these days it's down to six kind of populations, a couple on the on the South Wales coast and one in London, and it, it, it's still disappearing. So, so when I got interested in bumblebees, you could find the shrill card on Salisbury Plain, but that that population's now gone extinct. So it's gone from when I first started kind of paying attention, it had about six or seven populations, and it's now got one fewer. Another one on the Somerset levels is on the edge of going extinct with there's been one or two seen in recent years so from just in the last 20 years it's gone from kind of six to four populations and you know you can see where that's going if if we don't watch it then that'll that'll be it And that, you know, could easily go within the next decade. There are are others not far behind it, but that's the, I would say, the most kind of critically endangered of of our bumblebees.
1: And what exactly is causing their decline? Why are they so threatened?
2: It's a combination of factors. um, And nobody can quite agree on which ones are the the most kind of, or the relative ranking of them. But... Habitat loss, historic habitat loss, particularly. So the shrewl carder really likes flowery meadows, basically. And we used to have massive areas of flowery meadows in the UK. The statistics are really ter- terrifying, actually. So, so basically, there's a there's a habitat that kind of scientists call species-rich grassland, which encompasses ancient hay meadows and chalk downland. In 1930, Britain had, um, if I remember correctly, it was three million hectares, which is a lot it was everywhere most farms had a hay meadow and by 1987 97 of it had gone um, so in you know 50 years 57 years it was nearly all destroyed and, it, and we went from a landscape full of flowers to a landscape that's largely devoid of flowers so that that was you know the biggest driver and then you end up with bees like the shrill card are clinging on to little islands of habitat that have survived uh, and often coastal areas, sand dunes and uh, flowery kind of coastal margins which are, aren't farmable so they've survived or Salisbury Plain which survived just because it was a it was owned by the army and they like to drive their tanks and shoot at each other and, and it was so that just by chance protected it but then these little islands don't seem to be able to support populations indefinitely and that's really worrying so so the obvious kind of question is why Are they still going, why are they still declining? Because we're not destroying flower-rich grasslands anymore. There aren't any left. Well, very few left, and those that are left are protected. So... It begs the question, why Why are they still declining? What happened to, on Salisbury Plain? And we don't really know, but um, it may just be that the populations are too small and they're just not viable long term. They start to become inbred. There's no gene flow from outside. They're just completely cut off. And so eventually they weaken and, and disappear. And if that's true, that's really worrying because that means that, they're, you know, all of the surviving populations are doomed unless we can create a lot more habitat and link them back up again, um, which is going to be quite a challenge. But then there's all sorts of issues as well as habitat loss with pesticide use, um, which has grown enormously in the last 60, 70 years and continues to increase every year, more or less. Uh, and then finally, the well, two more things, actually. It's, it's becoming a bit of a long list, but um, there are issues with non-native diseases. So we've, so we've moved honeybees around the world because they're a domestic animal, they're livestock, essentially. And we've accidentally moved bee diseases, often diseases that were thought to be confined to honeybees, but then it turns out that actually they'll infect wild pollinators, bumblebees, and so on. Um, so, for example, it, we, somehow we introduced an Asian uh, sort of gut disease, a uh, thing called nasema serrani. Um, to Europe and they originally came from the Asian honeybee it's now infecting wild bumblebees and it's it's sometimes fatal so that isn't helping and then climate change is starting to kick in as well and bumblebees are, are adapted to cold chilly climates they're big and furry as uh, as, as an adaptation to to keeping warm and being active when it's cold, that's something most insects aren't very good at, which is fine until the climate starts to warm up. Um, but then obviously that's it's fairly obvious that that's not ideal and there's... <laughs> It's, it's it's probably not had much effect in the UK yet, but um, at the southern edges of the ranges, a lot of bumblebees are starting to contract northwards. They're disappearing because it just gets too hot for them these days in the summer. And that obviously is set to get quite a bit worse. So that's not going to help either. So, yeah, it's a whole bunch of things, really. And and, and the same is probably true if you'd asked that question about almost any other Type of wildlife really You know, there's a whole combination usually the list starts with habitat loss but then there's a whole bunch of other things that we we're throwing at species and they just can't cope with this kind of you know perfect storm of, of, of stresses
0: and could you paint us the picture of why these species of bees are so important to protect?
2: Well, so I mean, bees generally, of course, are, are really important pollinators. Eighty-seven percent of all plant species on the planet need pollinating by some kind of animal, and there are a few places where that could be—that might be done by a hummingbird or a bat or even a lizard in some places. But most of the time, it's an insect, and quite often, it's a bee. Um, so the decline of pollinating insects generally has has potentially really far-reaching consequences because if plants start to fail to set seed because they're not being pollinated well enough, then the knock-on effects of that will cause, you know, damage throughout terrestrial ecosystems. And, of course, from a a human selfish perspective, they pollinate our crops. Three-quarters, roughly three-quarters of crops that people grow in the world need pollinating by insects. Again, very often some kind of bee. So, you know, we, I mean, we basically most of the fruit and veg we grow is, is aided by insect pollinators. And it would be pretty tricky to feed everyone in the world, world a healthy diet without pollinators. So we do need to look after them. That said, you could say um, that, for example, the shrill carder could probably go extinct and it's certainly not going to going to have any repercussions for food production for humans because it only lives in a few nature reserves now its contribution to you know food production must be close to zero. So you need to find a different justification for for conserving these really rare species. And there's a there's a number of lines of argument, but I think the best one is simply that, you know, they I I think everything has as much right to be here as we do and you shouldn't need to justify everything in economic terms to say well, you know, this species gives us honey or pollinates our crops or, or whatever it is. And I find it really sad and annoying that people want to put everything in terms of what does it do for us? You know, what about what What can we do for it to steal some lines from JFK? But um, yeah, uh, I don't know why we have to always try to justify um, conserving things. I think they deserve it for their own sake. Um, but there is also an argument that, that there's pretty clear evidence that pollination services or any ecosystem service is more reliable if it's delivered by a lot of species and there's some redundancy in the system because if things change the pollinators that are common today might not be common tomorrow but maybe the ones that are rare today might be the common ones you know a year from now or 50 years from now and just on a year-to-year basis species vary in their relative abundance so there's a number of studies have shown that, that farmers get a more reliable yield if they've got a high diversity of species pollinating their crops so the ones that don't seem to be important at the moment might be in the future so there's another the, coming back to practical reasons why we should look after them but uh, yeah uh, i for me i don't i don't you know i don't study bumblebees or try to conserve them because they pollinate our crops it's kind of nice that they do and it it makes it's a good argument to use depends who you're talking to you know some someone who has no interest in nature whatsoever some boring politician who's lived in london all his life maybe telling him that bees do you know x million pounds worth of pollination is the is the way forward but i kind of find that a bit of a sad and shallow approach really
1: yeah, it really is. Um well when we think of pollinators, most people would just think of bees but you mentioned that there are other species that can pollinate too so what are these species
2: yeah well i mean there are literally thousands um so so i saw a recent estimate that at least four thousand species of insect just in the uk contribute to pollination um so that includes almost all butterflies most moths lots and lots of beetles huge numbers of flies Quite a lot of wasps, and there's a whole load of insects getting on pollination um, with varying degrees of kind of competence. Probably one of the best known, an example that always um, strikes home with people is 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 chocolate. You've probably heard of this, but but the cacao tree that produces chocolate is pollinated by a tiny little midge-like fly uh, and you know some bees can't pollinate them at all so so there's good reason to look after all of these this kind of rich diversity of pollinators.
1: And how can we look after these species in our gardens? I mean that's kind of
2: the nice thing I mean everything I've said so far has been quite depressing but but people can do stuff to help insects in their gardens, you know, I mean, I, I often say that lots of these environmental issues, uh, people do feel completely helpless, you know, you what on earth can you do about, you know, the Amazon being burned down, the ice caps melting, and you just kind of, it's, it's easy to get depressed and despondent and think, well, fuck all I can do about this but but with insects everyone can get involved because they live you know they live if you've got any kind of garden or even a window box or a balcony you can you can do something for them and you can get involved in local projects to badger the council to sow flowers in parks and road verges and all those kind of places on university campuses uh, and you see results really quickly you know so it's really nice if you if you just take some simple steps Insect populations increase really fast, and you can see all these lovely bumblebees and butterflies and things arrive in, in almost within hours of taking action. So, I mean, there's just there's really simple things um, that people can do: grow the right kinds of flowers, and there's lots of advice out there, including my various books um my newest book i've got sorry i've got to get in the plug for the newest book um is right here actually i just realized there we go um guiding for bumblebees uh, (laughs) which um uh, just came out on the first of april so it's just a few days old but it's basically full of information about which are the right plants to grow and lots of other stuff too all my youtube videos or any number of online lists will tell you what plants to grow and they're mostly fairly accurate don't use any pesticides in your garden it's just i don't understand why anyone would spray poisons in their garden where their kids play where their dog plays whatever on food they're planning to eat it's just bonkers don't mow the lawn too often really simple thing to do but if you just stop mowing most lawns burst into flower and well i mean my lawn actually looks like a little mini wildflower meadow um and i've not put any flowers in it at all it just i just don't cut it very much and it's full of all sorts of lovely things put up a bee hotel um, for solitary bees they seem to work quite well whether they really need them we're not quite sure but uh, it's certainly fun a fun little project and good for engaging with kids and so on. And I mean, if you just do those things, a pond is nice, not so much for pollinators, but fantastic for insect life. If you've got room, even a tiny little pond is really great. And it's amazing how many insects will turn up. So it's all really simple stuff. You know, anyone can, uh, we've known these things for ages, but if everyone did it, or most people did it, it's 22 million gardens in in the UK. And that covers, it's about 400,000 hectares. So it's it's a big chunk of land. Um, It's a bigger area than all the nature reserves in Britain put together and and that's not counting all the road verges and roundabouts and cemeteries and parks and everything that could also be managed for wildlife Um, so if we could, you know, if we could persuade everybody to make their gardens insect friendly and get the local council on board so they stop mowing the hell out of the road verges and the roundabouts and so on, then, you know, that's a kind of national network of habitat just just there. And, it, and it's already, the nice thing is it's kind of already happening. You know, there are some councils who've stopped mowing to encourage flowers and it's actually some of them sowing wildflower seed mixes. There are lots of gardeners that want to make their gardens more insect friendly so it's it's kind of, you know, it's like pushing it an open door. It is it is happening, um, not fast enough for my liking. And, the, of course, there are still people putting down AstroTurf in their gardens and things like that and you just think, oh, my God, what are you doing? Um, but I think they're in a minority and I hope we'll soon reach a point where it's just kind of socially unacceptable to do that kind of stuff. We'll see. But, uh, I mean, I, I would ban astroturf and and many other things
1: <laughs>
2: sounds a bit extreme but uh, pesticides we should just ban pesticides in urban areas completely france have done it if france can do it we can do it yes so there are there are simple things that could be done very quickly but anyway it's it's that's good news i mean it doesn't get past the fact that the majority of the you know the majority of Britain is still farmland, 70% of Britain is farmland, and that's a pretty hostile place for insect life at the moment. So we really need to tackle that as well. But, you know, rewilding our urban areas is a pretty good start, I reckon. Yeah, well,
0: congratulations on the new book. In another book of yours, The Garden Jungle, you mentioned there are certain supermarket fruits and the example you use is apples. Um, whose growing process involves a whole cocktail of pesticides which are detrimental to species such as bees. Um, and, and the environment in general is it possible for the consumer to avoid buying these fruits and these apples and and therefore supporting this practice
2: yeah of course it is i mean one of the other things that we should all do is you know exert our uh, exert influence as buyers by being selective and i mean the really simple answer there is to buy organic which i know is a bit more expensive but organic fruit and veg aren't horrendously expensive um yeah most people can afford them i think um i this meat is a bit different that is really really expensive if you go organic but actually we shouldn't be eating much meat anyway so if you want to save the planet you know start with thinking about your own personal influence and yeah i mean very simply if we if everyone went organic there would be no pesticides in the world and it sounds it's easy to say and obviously somewhat harder to persuade everyone to to just buy organic food but the power is in our hands if if we all took it so yeah you know think about i mean not not just pesticides but but buying seasonal locally produced produce and and avoiding products that have a, a high environmental impact like meat and dairy as much as possible you know i'm not vegan but i don't eat much meat and, you know, try to kind of think about what I buy. We, we get an organic veggie box delivered. We grow lots of our own fruit and veg, which is, you know, is, is obviously the, the kind of ultimate in, getting food it, as sustainably as possible is to grow it in your own garden or in an allotment and and it would be great if we could encourage more people to do that but if you haven't got room or the inclination or the skill or the time to grow your own food then try and find a local organic farmer and and don't buy out of season stuff don't buy you know grapes from south africa that have been flown in we all know that's really stupid and you know it's not sustainable um, so and you know do you really need grapes all year round you know you don't so we can all change the world by buying the right things and voting for politicians that will also support things from the top. But uh, yeah, we seem to have a long way to go on that one at the moment.
1: In a similar way to the apples, I know you've spoken about flowers sold in supermarkets and that you're quite upset with your local waiters for stocking flowers that have been grown purely for aesthetic purposes rather than for pollinating ones. So what advice would you give to people who are looking to buy flowers in their local supermarkets and they want to buy something that would be more beneficial to pollinating species?
2: Well, so the, the, the example I gave from Waitrose was about um, double flowers. So there are quite a lot of varieties that are commonly sold from supermarkets and garden centres and so on. Uh, ornamental plants that are, have extra sets of petals and uh, they're usually called double flowers. And so there are, I mean, roses, hollyhocks. Um, Aquilegias are also i mean daff- i 've got some daffodils in my garden that are a double variety because i didn 't plant them, but anyway basically they 're mutants, so the anthers are the male parts of a flower that produce the pollen that 's obviously what one of the two things that bees visit flowers for it's either pollen or nectar. Mm-hmm. These double varieties are mutants in which the the anthers have mutated into. instead of being anthers they 're petals. So there's just a bundle of petals with no pollen. Um, and if there is nectar, it's quite hard for, for insects to get into the flower because of all the extra petals. So most double flowers are completely useless, whereas the single varieties, which are kind of, I think look prettier anyway, they certainly look more natural, and, You know, are really good for pollinators. So that's a really simple thing. Just keep an eye out for those double varieties and avoid them like the plague. Uh, but uh, as I said earlier, there is a lot of advice out there about choosing which species To grow. Generally, old-fashioned kind of cottage garden perennials tend to be really good. Things like lavender and catmint, herbs like marjoram, it's fantastic. Um, sage, rosemary, thyme, um, all really good plants for pollinators. There's lots of other species you can grow. And you can have a really beautiful garden full of flowers. And, you know, at the same time as being wildlife-friendly and attracting all that life to buzz around. The one thing that's hard to avoid is the fact that uh, most if not all of the plants on sale in garden centres will have been drenched in pesticides before you bought them which is something else we studied we, we bought uh, all the bee friendly plants from garden centres around, around the Brighton area in, in East Sussex and it's because they're often garden centres will badge up the ones that are bee friendly or pollinator friendly usually with a little bee logo on the label or something along those lines. And they accurately, usually accurately label plants that are attractive to insects. So anyway, we bought a whole bunch of them when we tested them for pesticides. And I think 98% of them um, had some kind of pesticide in them and 75% contained insecticides, which, you know, given that they're being sold as bee friendly is kind of Taking the Mickey, really? Is surely you'd think must contravene some kind of uh, advertising regulation, uh, and and but there's no way of knowing what's in the flowers because the, the shop won't have a clue. Most supermarkets, well, all supermarkets, buy those flowers from wholesalers. They don't treat them with pesticides themselves or rear them themselves. And most garden centre chains are, are the same, so they have no idea what's gone on the plants unless you can find a small independent nursery that <laughs> they might know. But otherwise, there's no way of finding out. So it's best to assume that they're full of pesticides, in which case it's best to buy them um, and grow plants from seed or do plant swaps with friends and neighbours or find a nice organic nursery online. Um, There are a few. Uh, rosy bee is a nice one rosy bee plants which is in oxfordshire i think but you can find them online if you google it
0: very good um so this last summer as a spontaneous lockdown project i dug a, a rewilding pond in my parents garden where i was living um to attract a greater range of wildlife into the garden but i've neglected planting any plants around its bank so i didn't know where to start i was wondering if you might have any suggestions
2: yeah, the, the, there are lots of um, um, nice uh, native marginal plants that that can grow in in and around ponds. Um, yellow flag iris is really good for, for bees, particularly some of the longer tongued bumblebees absolutely love it. Um, purple loose strife is a really pretty flower that uh, loves boggy conditions. Comfrey actually can grow pretty well in boggy conditions, and um, a water mint is also a really nice native with pretty blue flowers that uh, bees go crazy for. I'm sure I could think of some more too if I sat down for a minute, but uh, that would be a good place to start.
1: You've also spoken a bit about rewilding and how if you want to rewild an area, it's best practice to just mow the grass once a year. So why is it good to do this rather than to just not mow the grass at all and leave it go completely wild?
2: Yeah, so the, 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 the lovely flower-filled hay meadows that I mentioned earlier that we used to have so lots of, they were managed by cutting once or sometimes twice a year for hay um, over hundreds of years. And then they developed these amazing flower communities. If you didn't cut the hay, if you just left that field... I mean, ultimately, it would become a woodland. Um, It wouldn't be a flower-filled meadow. It would be uh, mostly oak trees, um, probably, depending on where you are. And, And in the short term, you end up with a thicket of dry grass that that sort of tends to a kind of a thick thatch of grass, uh, which tends to smother flowers. And then, you know, fairly quickly, within a few years, you start to get bramble and hawthorn and other spiky shrubs colonising. And before you know it, you've got a, a thicket, which is good habitat for some things. And of course, oak woodland is also good habitat for other things but if you want a flower meadow or a a, a flower rich kind of lawn then you do need to cut it uh, or else you know it'll sort of natural process of succession will take place and it'll if you live long enough turn into a forest.
0: Rewilding is becoming quite a big deal at the moment and it's being seen as quite a good response to the climate crisis and a way to improve general biodiversity um, across the planet. But have you encountered any barriers to this
2: idea? Uh, yeah I mean well the, the the first one is is obviously we do also need to grow food and feed everybody and we can't just rewild everywhere but we could rewild a lot um, particularly focusing on on the areas that aren't particularly productive to start with and you know there are big chunks of Britain, which don't produce very much food at all. Um, and they don't offer much else in, way, in the way of kind of ecosystem services either. Much of the uplands of Britain, and it's a sensitive issue because, because people who farm those uplands are used to doing it their way and don't like being told that their lifestyle isn't, isn't sustainable or isn't going to be supported by subsidies anymore. But that the, at the end of the day, we do subsidise farming activities very heavily with taxpayers' money, which gives us the right to say well actually we don't, we're not going to pay you to carry on doing that anymore you know, if you want subsidising you need to do something different and so the you know, overgrazing of the uplands of Britain or their use as grouse moors which is absolutely outrageously stupid if you ask me um, should end and uh, I, w- I would love to see a lot more forests and rewilded areas in the uplands which provide precious little food and uh, also not managed in a way that helps to mitigate flood risk which they could be all managed for carbon storage, which they could be. Uh, So I think we do need to change the management of of the land by rewilding some of it. And... And also if you, I mean the whole food production system is such a mess it's hard to know where to start with fixing it but if you look at the kind of globally at food production, we, we actually produce way more food than is required it's just the whole process is staggeringly inefficient and you know a th- roughly a third of all the food that's produced is wasted um, and another third is, is fed to livestock rather than people so actually if, if you if, if we could cut down on waste and cut down on meat consumption we could feed the world with much less farmland Uh, about 80 percent of farmland is devoted to meat and dairy production which provides us with something like eight percent of our calories so we could we could basically rewild a lot of that land if we wanted to Um, and i think i mean it does offer a huge potential as a supplement to traditional conservation some people like rewilding so much they think we should rewild nature reserves and then you have to point out to them that actually most nature reserves in britain are are the result of man's activity and you know in the absence of oryx and and elephants and the like and they're, they're not going to be maintained they won't keep their biodiversity unless we carry on managing them but anyway that's a slight side issue um yeah I'm a, I'm a big fan of rewilding I think it I mean it's I, I go to uh NEP quite regularly because that's near me and that's one of the best known rewilding projects in the UK and it's really cool although I did this morning get an email from Charlie Burrell who owns it um asking me <laughs> it's depressing asking me to sign a letter that they're sending to the government in protest, that it's just they've just announced that there's going to be um, three and a half thousand houses built immediately adjacent to Net. You know, honestly, and they've been trying to 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 extend Net by persuading neighbouring landowners to join in to create a kind of network that they want to link through to the south coast and northwards to some other big areas of woodland. This kind of vast new town is going to be plopped right on top of this kind of what they hoped was going to be a network for biodiversity which is a fairly depressing prospect but there you go the current government are desperately keen to build millions of houses reg- anywhere as far as I can tell which I s- I'm slightly puzzled by but uh, well I guess the obvious explanation is they're going to make lots of money out of it but uh, anyway we're getting off topic slightly sorry. It's
1: okay um, so are there any organized projects that people can get involved with to help support the Resurgence of pollinator species like bees? Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of cool things going on. It's hard to know where to start. I mean, there are obviously national organisations that are doing a lot. The Wildlife Trusts are really good. They They've had a big insect campaign last year and this year. So, and they have lots of volunteering opportunities and things you can go and do with them. You could join the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, which is this charity that I started in 2006. I don't have anything to do with them anymore, particularly. They do lots of good stuff. There are recording schemes for pollinators that you can join. There's a, there's a national butterfly recording scheme. There's a, Bumblebee recording scheme that the Bumblebee Conservation Trust run, uh, or you could you could get involved in campaigning for your local town to be pesticide free. There are lots of pesticide free town campaigns going on dotted around Britain, and if anyone's interested, there's an organisation called Pesticide Action Network that is kind of can provide advice and support for how to do that. Or there's there's a, there's also some really cool um, there's, a, there's a little organisation called On the Verge. That are based in Stirling, that um, in Scotland, that basically plant wildflowers, uh, so wildflower seed mixes uh, on any bit of amenity land that they can persuade the council to let them on um, and and the one in Stirling has now spawned um, on, on the verge cambridge and i've just heard a few days ago there's going to be an on the verge brighton so it's kind of multiplying so wherever you are you know you, you could start your own wing of on the verge and plant wildflower seeds all over the road verges and roundabouts and whatnot so there's, there's loads of stuff people can do if they want to get involved
1: um, i was also wondering so sort of a last question Uh, In your book, The Garden Jungle, each of your chapters are introduced with recipes. Uh, I wanted to know if you've tried every one, and if so, which is your favourite?
2: Oh, I think the Sussex apple pudding is probably my favourite. It's not very healthy because it's just quite a lot of sugar in it, but (laughs) it's very delicious. And how can people find you if they want to get in touch? Oh, it's pretty easy. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm. You can find my email on on the university web page as well. So, um, or on Facebook or any all the usual places. Really, it's uh, um, if you know how to use Google, as everybody does, then <laughs> very easily.
1: Thank you so much.
2: It's been a pleasure.
0: He was great to talk to
1: yeah he was very interesting i do feel quite inspired to make my garden or convince my parents because i live with them to make our garden into a rich and diverse rewilded haven
0: true you'll have to stop them from mowing it i'm looking forward to finally planting some plants around that rewilding pond slash pit in my gut my parents garden yeah
1: i think they'd appreciate that it's more of a hazard than a wildlife haven at the moment
0: anyway what a great guest we're learning so much and I'm very much looking forward to the next one.
1: Yep, and the next one isn't even confirmed. It could be sand lizards or beavers or something totally different.
0: Well, all of those sound interesting to me, so I can't wait. Anyway, if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at our threatened species and let us know what you thought.
1: You can also follow us if you didn't enjoy it and leave us some hate mail because that's always exciting too. <laughs> but for now, goodbye.
0: Bye.